Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, every once in a while, it's interesting to contemplate an aquatic habitat that we don't think about all that much in the hobby. Today, let's talk about one that's definitely a little bit different than the ones we usually find ourselves working with. Let's consider the habitats around the karsts. The what? The karsts. What the fuck is a karst, Feldman? Well, I'll tell you. A karst is an area of land made up of limestone. Now, limestone, also known as chalk or calcium carbonate, is a soft rock that dissolves in water. We kind of know this. The process produces geological features like ridges, towers, fissures, sinkholes, and other characteristic landforms. Many of the world's largest caves and underground rivers are located in karst lands. Now, karstic terrain is very interesting. That porous limestone rock that holds a lot of groundwater, ponds, and streams, sometimes located underground even. And those cool structures known as cenotes, which are closed basins, we'll have to talk about those another time, that you see in Mexico and places like that. Karsts are characterized by the presence of those caves, those sinkholes, those dry valleys, and what they call disappearing streams in geology, temporal. These landscapes are known for their groundwater flow and efficient drainage of surface water through a wide network of subterranean conduits, fractures, and caves. They are found throughout the world, including France, China, the Yucatan Peninsula, South America, and parts of the United States. In typical karstic habitats, the water is very clear, becoming turbid after heavy rains. Now, flash floods occur several times a year during the rainy season, and in this period, the stream width increases, making available habitats to be colonized, called, called temporary stretches. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Yeah, these could be interesting aquarium habitats. Yeah, and since a bunch of them occur in South America, where some of our fave fishes come from, this could be really interesting. A fascinating neotropical karst landscape is located in the São Francisco River Basis in Mino, Minas Gerais State in Brazil. The fish diversity in these waters is really significant. In fact, one study that I stumbled upon identified 20 different, 28 different species distributed in three orders and nine families in this one locale alone. So it shows you there's a lot of diversity in some of these areas. Now, the pH values in the South American karst habitats I found uh, in studies range from 6.3 to 8.2 and averaged around 7.2, which is slightly alkaline. The water temperatures averaged around 75 degrees Fahrenheit, it's about 23.8 centigrade. The conductivity averaged about 30 microsemians, and the ORP averages about 178 millivolts. Now, that's lower than one might expect, right? In reef keeping, we shoot for around like 300 or so millivolts. So, yeah, that's interesting. Now, it's thought that the low levels of ORP can be associated with environmental pollution, of course, that makes sense, and or, and get this, high concentrations of ions, which is consistent in waters with karstic origins. Pretty interesting stuff. And these protected pools, streams, and caves present highly unique habitats for fishes. Caves? Did I say caves? Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Must be a protective environment, right? 
Of course, it's not all, you know, roses and unicorns in those caves. The more or less permanent absence of light and limited food scarcity represents the most conspicuous ecological pressures that are posed on, you know, animals that live in caves. We'll talk about those some other time because there are some interesting things about caves. Let's focus on the protected streams and pools. Now, what kind of fishes do you find in them? Um, a lot of kerosens, like uh, Astyanax fasciatus, Hemogrammus marginatus, kerosens, Hyphesobrycon sante, and one of that I've seen recently for sale, Serapinus piaba. Um, and that's, this was all found in this one location that I was talking about in Brazil, which I thought was really interesting. Um, cichlids were represented in this area too, with the well-known Geophagus brasiliensis and Loricarids with, you know, Hypostomus lima and some other catfishes like Pimadella and Hopleus species. And lesser appreciated in the aquarium world, at least, Caracidium species are also found in this habitat. So there's a lot of interesting fishes. Catfishes are considered by ichthyologists to be the most common uh, fish group showing the traits required for cave dwelling. So you'll see those in karstic caves, and they're considered sort of pre-adapted to the subterranean habitat because of their nocturnal habitats, their electronic orientation abilities, and their omnivorous or generalist carnivorous diets. So it'll come to no surprise to most of you who read the tint and listen to my podcast to discover that the surrounding terrestrial habitat has a profound influence on the species richness of the fishes found in these locales. Studies have determined that the percentage of what they call channel canopy cover has the strongest effect on fish assemblages and is related to the percentage of organic matter in the stream bed. Greater density of riparian vegetation is correlated by field studies to have a profound influence on fish community composition. We've heard this before, haven't we? Ichthyologists have found that the canopy cover increased stream channel shade. Okay, that's kind of a no-brainer, right? Enhancing habitat use by certain fish groups. Light reduction also lowers what ecologists call primary production, which decreases the density of algae-consuming species. Ichthyologists working on karst pools determined that the roots, arboreal, and aquatic vegetation profoundly affect the species diversity of fish assemblages. Another case of fishes following the food, right? Now, Again, backtracking a bit, cave communities are truly dependent on allochthonous input, uh, allochthonous matter from outside of the habitat, stuff that is carried by different agents, wind, percolation, falling into the water, current, etc. Wood and organic material substrates are significantly less abundant in the subterranean karst habitats as compared with those surface sites. Makes sense. Ecologists feel that the presence of wood in rivers can have a potentially good effect on the biodiversity of aquatic systems in many different ways. Wood's considered to be an important nutrient source for aquatic insects, and we all know how fishes feel about aquatic insects, right? Of course, the food for insects is a relevant factor regarding the trophic structure and the productivity in aquatic food webs. Cave environments represent what ecologists call harsh oleotrophic habitats that may prevent the formation of populations sufficient to support fishes. Rotifers are pretty common in these habitats and no doubt form a substantial part of the diets of smaller fishes. Copepods were the next most abundant food items in one study I read in these karstic caves, and that's kind of neat. I keep going back to the caves because it's, it's kind of a fascinating adaptation. It'd be tricky to play with in an aquarium, but interesting. Again, the food webs are the primary contributor to the suitability of a given habitat for fishes. And it's thought that the permanent dark passages and caves may act as filters, selecting fish species with the necessary attributes to move into and exploit the food you know, resources present in them. Makes sense. It's thought by scientists that the, you know, the presence of subterranean spaces in karst habitats is responsible for shaping the fish community, typically favoring nocturnal and small-sized fishes because of the small foods that are found there. Makes sense. 
So from Recora's perspective, karstic habitats should be pretty easy to replicate in the aquarium, right? I mean, basically, you're talking about lots of smooth stone and sand, the scattering of leaves and a few branches. It's one instance where I'd tell you to use activated carbon or other chemical media to keep the water more or less clear. I mean, in some habitats, it's crystal clear. Um, I, I've linked on the, uh, the, po- the uh, blog version of this podcast a, a video by a friend, a Ty Streitman, of a karstic river in Mato Grosso do Sul in Brazil. And you got to see the current in that place. It's pretty amazing. I think I finally now have a freshwater application for my Vortec MP10 pumps that I've been hiding for years. Yeah, we'll have to talk uh, to Ty again. We'll have him back on the, on this podcast and talk about this habitat because he did talk about it briefly in uh, his last visit to the tent where he was talking about the current, and I think that's pretty interesting. Now, you'll also find in these habitats lots of epiphytic algal growth, some broken up leaves, aggregations of rocks, and sand. I mean, this is like a chorus paradise. You can pretty much use every trick in the aquascaping book and still come up with a reasonably faithful biotopic presentation, functionally aesthetic, no less. And for some of you, not to have to deal with you know, super acidic water and dark tint could be a real win, right? Well, I hope you're at least intrigued by this unique habitat. Obviously, in a brief podcast like this, I can only touch on the most cursory stuff, and I did, and I was all over the place, but it's one of those things that I stumbled on. I kept seeing this word karst, and I'm like, what the hell is a karst? So I started looking it up, and then I realized Ty had mentioned it in a podcast, and, you know, after a little bit of back and forth and discussion, I found out these are really fascinating habitats. And you can find out information about stuff like this online and elsewhere just not really in the aquarium hobby realm you need to dig deeper and this is the the case with a lot of habitats scholarly articles and research papers are really treasure troves of information about all these unique habitats that we talk about don't be intimidated by the technical stuff in these papers there's a lot of really amazing stuff in them that's well worth the read we'll be talking more about this unique habitat for sure and i think i'm probably going to try to replicate something of, uh, of this uh habitat at some point. I'm sure some of you might as well. But it's just another example of this amazing diversity of aquatic habitats that's available all over the world if we just look beyond what we see in the aquarium books. So I'm excited that we uh, we ventured into this new area. I want you to stay curious, stay resourceful, stay intrigued, stay creative, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.